Good morning, church. Good morning to those who are watching from home this morning. It was good to see some of those who haven't been here, here in the first service. It's really good to see them. There was a young uh, police officer who was taking his final exam for the police academy, and he read the following question on his exam paper. It said, you are on patrol in the outer city when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath and there's an overturned van nearby. Inside the van, there's a, small sm a strong smell of alcohol and both occupants, man and woman, are injured. You immediately recognize the woman as the wife of your chief of police who's presently out of the country. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance. You realize that he's a man who's wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, a man runs shouting that his wife is expecting a baby, and the shock of the explosion has made her, his, her birth uh, uh, imminence. Another man, crying for help, has been blown in the adjacent canal uh, by the explosion, and he cannot swim. The examiner, examination question concluded. Describe in a few words what actions you would take. <laughs> the young man thought for a moment. He picked up his pen and he wrote, I'd take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. <laughs> that sounds like the best option. And some of us see the difficulties of being a Christian in the same way. There seems to be an overwhelming number of problems going on simultaneously in the world. Which one should we be most concerned about? See, being a Christian living in an upside-down world is like trying to juggle six balls at one time while balancing a bucket of water on our heads. And at times, to conform and just mingle with the crowd seems like a pretty good option. How are we to respond to the events of the day? Are we to absorb ourselves into the culture and kind of blend in and mingle? Or are we to withdraw and have, a very, have very little to do with the culture, you know, form this holy huddle and chant us for and no more? Are those the only two choices? Assimilate and absorb ourselves or isolate and withdraw? Are those our only two options? I believe there's a third group. It is cooperation without compromise. It is cooperation without compromise. And church, this is the most challenging road to walk, but I believe it's what we're called to as a church. We can stand out without being obnoxious. We can be a bright spot in a dark world. And that leads me to uh, uh, our new sermon series in Daniel. And, and I invite you, if you're not there already, ready, to join with me in the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel. One way you can find that is open up your Bible to the book of Isaiah, because there's a lot of chapters. It opens up to that pretty, pretty easily. And then get to Isaiah and then take a right through the streets of Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel, and then you will arrive at your destination. Now, just as an aside, initially this sermon series was set for last January. 
But then I decided to, to go in a different direction and postpone this to 2021, so here we are. Now, it's always a timely message because it's the Word of God that's never outdated or irrelevant. But in light of all that's going on in the world, it feels even more relevant and timely. Now, often when we think of Daniel, our minds think only prophecy. And there's prophecy in the book of Daniel. But of the 12 chapters, really, it's um, only the last part of chapter 9 through chapter 12 that present us with predictive events. And, And I'll deal with those prophecies on some level when we come to them. But our study isn't as much about the prophecies of Daniel and how they fit into the events of the day as it is about how to live as a bright spot in dark times. All right, so let's look at the dark times in which Daniel lived. Our first heading, if you want a heading this morning, it's the plight or the plight of the people. And so follow along with me in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. I want to read these again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia or the plain of Shinar and put it in the treasure house of his God. Now the book starts out, doesn't it, on a sad note. There's an obvious disaster. What is the major disaster here? Well, uh, just as a a quick review here, as some of you probably already know or maybe recall from our cover-to-cover sermon series of the greatest story ever, that the, the one nation of Israel split into two nations. They were the 10 tribes of the north, commonly referred to in Scripture as Israel. And then there are the two southern tribes, commonly referred to as Judah. The setting of Daniel is the people of Judah are in exile or in captivity. The Babylonians or Chaldeans, it's really the same thing. They come against Judah. They overtake it. They kidnap the people of Judah in a series of three deportations. They don't take all the people all at once. So over a period really of five or or six years or more, they haul the people of Judah away in three sweeping movements and three deportations. Well, who was part of the first deportation? Daniel and we'll say his three friends. There are certainly more hostages than these four guys, but Scripture mentions these four only. Why are they worthy to name? Well, we will see why in a moment. These are sad times for the people of God. They're in this mess because of their persistence in sin, as we're going to see when we get to Daniel's prayer and and Daniel chapter 9. And it isn't as though they didn't see this judgment coming. God had warned his people time and time again over a period of 500 years to repent of their ways or else they would face the judgment and discipline of God. And also, roughly 100 years before being captured by the Babylonians, they saw what happened to the 10 northern tribes who were taken into captivity because of their rebellion by Assyria in 722 B.C. So they should have learned from that. Okay, their plight? Well, most of the city of Jerusalem 
uh, had been destroyed by Babylonian forces. The king of Judah was taken away. And pieces of the temple of God were stolen and placed in the temple of the gods of Babylonia. Now that's significant. Because for Babylon to take the nation Judah, it was bigger than one nation conquering another nation. And their way of thinking in that day, it meant if you conquered another nation, it meant that the gods of the Babylonians were greater than Yahweh God, the God of Judah. It was a our God beat your God mentality. You know, it's in times like this that we often wonder, where is God? Has God forsaken us? I mean, everything seems so out of control and upside down. And Psalm 137, it expresses how the people felt in those dark times. They said, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, and Zion was their home. There on the poplars, on the trees, we hung our harps. They said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? They had lost their song. Do you know the feeling? They're giving up. They're placing their harps onto the, they've, they've hung them up, that we're done. But do you feel like giving up? Feels that it's all so overwhelming that you're just going to kind of mingle with the crowd? Well, there's, there's one truth that we need to remember in times of disaster. What one thing we dare not forget when everything seems out of control. I want you to see two words in verse 2 that can give a little perspective for our times. I mean, it's kind of easy to gloss over these potent words, and many commentators didn't even touch on this. It's worthy to mention. Because in verse 2, verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hands. Now those words, the Lord delivered, literally are two words, God gave. God gave. And three times in chapter 1, those two words appear. Here in verse 2, we see it again in verse 9, and the NIV doesn't capture it this way, but, but I'll give you the literal one here. But, but NIV, NIV says, now God had caused the officials to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. God had caused is literally God gave. God gave. God gave the officials a, a sense in which they would have favor for Daniel. Same phrase in verse 2, God gave. We see it again down in verse 17. There's no accident. To these four young men, God gave, God gave knowledge and understanding. God gave. Who's in charge here? God is. You see, the book of Daniel is all about a great God who is sovereign over all. And when we think of God's sovereignty, we can think of it this way. God knows what he's doing and he's doing it. I mean, it's more than that, but it's at least that. God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. Now, church, God was in control in the 6th century B.C. in Babylon, and God is in control in America in 2021. Do not lose heart over that. That is the truth. He's still in control of the world. God is still on the throne, and he has no plans of surrendering that to anyone anytime. 
Where's God? Why would God allow this? God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. God gave the people of God into the hands of the Babylonians. Now, the Babylonians, they think they're hot stuff, but they're simply tools in the hand of a just God to carry out his plans. Seen on a plaque in someone's home, it said, remember God is something up his sleeve besides his everlasting arm. (laughs) Or as I like to say, God's always up to something. Where's God in all this? We're going to move from the plight to the plot, what really thickens here, but it's in verses 3 through 7 that sets the stage for everything that's going to come to pass in the book of Daniel and in Daniel's life in Babylon. Second heading, the plot. The plot. Look at me at verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites and the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. End of verse 4. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, let's just pause there. What's going on here? The king said, Get me the best looking, the smartest, and the most charming people you can find, and we're going to turn them into good Chaldeans. Now, that's a perspective all too common in the world. What kind of people do we hold up? (laughs) Athletes, celebrities, models, graduates of prestigious schools. Oh, you graduated from that school? And often, character isn't even on the radar. And so the king selected the cream of the crop to be run through his three-year training program to indoctrinate them to become full-fledged Chaldeans. There was this educational aspect to it in the hopes that they would change their beliefs. There was a, the king even changed their nice Hebrew names that exalted God to pagan names, it tells us in verses 6 and 7. I mean, their thinking is, you change their names, you might change their identity. Because if you forget your roots, you forget your heritage, you forget your family, you forget your past, you forget where you came from and where is home, and you suddenly don't have any identity anymore. George Shultz, Secretary of State during the Reagan years, kept this large globe in his office. And some kids might be going, what's a globe? Well, it's this round thing tells you all the countries and different things. It's beautiful. Well, when newly appointed ambassadors had an interview with him, and when ambassadors returning from their post for their first visit with him uh, after leaving, before leaving his office, Schultz would test them. He would say to them, I want you to go over to the globe and prove to me that you can identify your country. They'd go over, they'd spin the globe, they'd put the finger on the country to which they were sent. When Schultz's old friend and and former Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield was appointed ambassador to Japan, even he was put to the test. I want you to go over to the globe, and I want you to prove to me that you can identify your country. Well, Ambassador Mansfield, he went over to the globe, he spun the globe, and he put his hand on the United States, and he said, that's my country. (laughs) Schultz would then tell the story to all the ambassadors going out and say, never forget you're over there in that country, but your country is the United States. You're there to represent us, 
take care of our interests and never forget it, and that you're representing the best country in the world. We must never forget where home is. We must never forget our allegiance first is to our God. And that comes to the pressure to conform. Third heading this morning, the pressure to conform. Perhaps you've heard the story of a spider who built a beautiful web in his old house. He kept it shiny and clean so that flies would patronize it. One day, this fairly intelligent fly came buzzing by the clean spider web. An old man spider called out to him, come on in and sit. But the fairly intelligent fly said, oh, no, sir. I don't see other flies in your house, and I'm not going alone. Just then, the fly saw on the floor below what seemed to be a large crowd of flies dancing around on a piece of brown paper. He was delighted. He was not afraid if lots of flies were doing it, so he began his descent. Just when he was about to land, this bee zoomed by saying, don't land there, that brown paper, that's fly paper. But the fairly intelligent fly shouted back, don't be silly, those flies are dancing. There's a big crowd there, everybody's doing it, that many flies can't be wrong. So the fly landed on the piece of brown paper and we would say the rest is history. The world is relentless as it works overtime to communicate a comfortable, rosy, greener grass picture that says, come on over here and join us. Why be different? Do we fall for it? As has been said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. To be a bright spot in a dark world begins with a refusal to compromise. That's what we see in verse 8. Verse 8 says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, back in verse 5, it told us that the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And for most people, to eat the food of the king and drink the wine of the king, that'd be a tremendous privilege. And Daniel says no to that privilege. Now, I find this interesting. Say with me, I find this interesting. Daniel says yes to his new education, this new university. He does. He's cooperative. Daniel says yes to the giving of the new names. He knew that you could change his name all they wanted, but it wouldn't change who he was. He's cooperative. He said yes to some things, but not yes to everything. He drew the line at eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine. We might go, it seems like such a small thing. Just go along with it, Daniel. Why do you draw the line here? Why was it yes, yes, no? It wasn't because he was a vegetarian, by the way. There was this big thing back in the 90s for people to go on the Daniel diet. And if you did, there's no offense meant here. But that so much misses the point. And by the way, as we're going to see next week, after the 10 days of their Daniel diet, it says they look better nourished. You know literally what that is? It says they were fatter. I don't know anyone who goes on a diet to look fatter in the end. Just saying. 
The point isn't some personal preference of diet. The king's food that was offered to Daniel and his friends was food offered to the gods of Babylon. Daniel was not about to take part, even indirectly, in the worship of Babylonian deities. That's where he drew the line. He'd cooperate in the training program. He'd cooperate in their educational system. He'd cooperate with the name change, but he would not compromise his loyalty to his God. Daniel declared the royal food and wine carried defilement. He resolved not to eat it and drink of it. See, Daniel knew what to say yes to and what to say no to. Why? He had convictions. He wasn't making this up as he went. And some of us, quite frankly, we're trying to, to make it up as we go. When I get in that situation, I don't know, I'll, I'll just figure out what I'm going to do then. When I am in that heat of passion, then I will draw the line. No, you won't. When I'm backed up against the wall, oh, then I'll know what I'm supposed to do. Doesn't work that way. Some of us are going into the battle without convictions, hoping to get to somehow get, get out of it unscathed, unharmed. Don't be like the uncertain soldier in the Civil War who couldn't make up his mind. So he dressed himself in a Union blue coat and Confederate gray pants. Then he tiptoed onto the field of battle. You know what happened. He got shot at from both sides. We must decide where we're going to land, what side we're going to be on, and then take our firm, uncompromising stand right there. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And this one decision uh, was foundational to everything else that we're going to see in the book of Daniel. And if there was anyone who might have had an excuse to compromise more than most of us will ever have, it's the man Daniel. He was ripped away from everything he called home. His family, his culture, his language, his school, the festivals, normal food. And to put it just in a little more perspective, how old is Daniel right here? It's commonly believed that he's somewhere between 14 years old and 22 years old. My guess, really, is that he's between 14 and 17. It was a tough time to be a teenager. The pressure he was under to mingle with the crowd and blend in was tremendous. He was living in a culture where people didn't believe the same way he did. Daniel was in the minority. You feel like you're in the minority? He was relocated hundreds of miles from his homeland to a totally strange environment to live among total strangers. What do you do when you live in a context where people don't believe a single thing you believe? Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. You knew I'd get that hymn in there for you old timers somewhere. And you go, but pastor, I'm no Daniel. Listen, don't superhumanize Daniel. Daniel was no professor of some Christian university. Daniel was no pastor. Daniel was not an elder in his church. Daniel was not a graduate of a local seminary. He was a regular guy. He was a teenager, a young person who had the courage of his convictions. One who could firmly say, no compromise. How could this teenager, who was so far away from home, where no one from home would even see what he was doing, be strong? 
Daniel had character. And character has been defined as who you are when no one is looking. Who are you in the dark? And I wonder, I wonder, how many of our young people, even coming out from Christian homes and who come out from the church, could hold up against such pressure? I wonder. I mean, are we sending Daniels out or are we sending a disaster out, kids who are, whose feet are planted in midair? Are we sending out our kids uh, to simply act Christian or to be Christian? There is a difference. Because acting Christian won't cut it. Are our young people growing up with convictions? Do they know what to say no to? Do we? How about you? Let's not put it just on our young people. Are you, are we developing convictions based on the word of God? Are we prepared to take a stand for what is right? All right, here lies the challenge from these eight verses. When, what do we, when do we say yes and cooperate? And when must we say no in order to not compromise? At a 1999 conference in Houston, Speaker Marty Ensign, a missionary to Africa, told of bringing some African pastors to the United States for a big meeting. It was the first time they were in the United States. And during their free time, these Africans wanted to go shopping in the local town. And, and even though it was a small town, Marty knew there was a chance someone was going to have some difficulty or even get lost. And so she gave them her phone number for such an emergency. And in less than an hour, the phone rang and the African said, I am lost. I have nowhere, no idea where I am. Can you come and get me? Well, Marty said, well, lay the phone down, go down to the street corner, find out the names of the two streets at that corner, and then come back and tell me and I'll come and, and get you. Well, he did. He put down the phone. He went down to the, to, the, to the corner there and then he returned to the phone and he said, yeah, I'm at the corner of walk and don't walk. Walk and don't walk. Not very helpful. That's often how we feel when it comes to overwhelming number of problems going on simultaneously in the world. Which one should we be most concerned about? Walk in it or don't walk in it? All right, I want to leave you with some points of application right here. Some points of applications of how we can be cooperative without compromise. First of all, first point of application is choose your battles wisely. Choose your battles wisely. Notice Daniel's choice in battles. He was not about to make an issue over everything. You do have to choose what hills you are willing to die on. And some people want to make every hill one to die on. Be selective about your battles. Which ones to engage in, walk into, which ones not to, which ones to pass on. And for those of you with a high sense of justice, you're going to really struggle with this. But you need to choose your battles wisely. Secondly, fight defilement, but not every offense. Fight defilement, but not every offense. It had to be offensive. For Daniel, every time he heard someone call out, Belshazzar, Belshazzar. He was given the nice Hebrew name, Daniel, which meant God is judge. And now he's hearing Belshazzar, which means it's, it's, it was named after the Babylonian god, Bel, 
And it would be, God, Bell, their God, would protect his life. He had to hear that over and over again. It had to be offensive. It had to be offensive to hear the teaching that went against everything he was taught and believed, but he didn't fight those. You notice that? He fought defilement. Thirdly, speak truth in love. Speak truth in love. Daniel wasn't a jerk about this. Matter of fact, as we're going to pick it up next week, Daniel asked the chief official for permission. He offers an alternative approach. And so we decide we must fight a battle. Don't be a jerk about it. We can speak truth in love. And then lastly, at the risk of sounding redundant, because you've heard me say this before, keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? The gospel of Jesus Christ. We represent Jesus Christ and are his ambassadors in a country that is not our own. Now, as I said at the outset, Daniel uh, didn't absorb himself completely into the culture, nor did he isolate and withdraw from the culture. Daniel is an example of one who cooperated without compromise. And I believe that's when we can be that bright spot in the dark world. But it's not easy to live an uncompromising life in a compromising world. You must decide now, not later, you must decide now where you will stand. Because remember, a compromise today just might lead to a character trait tomorrow. At what point would you compromise your allegiance to Christ? At what point would you compromise your integrity? What's your price tag? A man and a woman were sitting next to each other on an airplane. And the man leaned over to this beautiful woman, and after an appropriate introduction, he asked, would you go to bed with me for $10,000? To which she responded, yeah, yeah, I would. Would you go to bed with me? He went on for $1,000, the man asked, and she thought a little bit more about it and said, yeah, yeah, I think I would. The man asked, what about $10? You go to bed with me for $10? To which she replied, what do you think I am? He answered, we've already established what you are. We're just negotiating the price. For what price would you, would I, compromise our integrity? What's your price? Your price is whatever point you would sell out. What ought to be true of us is that there's no price which would make us compromise what we know to be true and who we are as a Jesus follower. Resolve not to be bought. As Jonathan Edwards put it, two resolutions. Resolution number one, I will live for God. And resolution, resolution number two, if no one else does, I still will. Not bad. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. May it indeed be useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. In righteousness. That we may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work.
uh, grab the lesson here this morning that you want from our, our, our opening of our study here, from these eight verses, and we apply it to our lives. God, it's not worth it to build our life on anything else other than you, other than the gospel, other than Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, to know where we need to stand in that and what that looks like this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.